Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello everyone, welcome to The Exchange. I'm your host, Tom Daly. For today's episode, I was fortunate enough to be able to connect with the host of the History of China, Chris Stewart. After I'd finished the History of Rome, and was casting about for something to fill the space on my iPod, I thought to myself, how about that other great empire in history, China? During my search, I was confronted by choices, to be sure, but there was only one podcaster that I could see that was developing a comprehensive, chronological narrative for the 5,000 years of Chinese history, and that was Chris. And what a storyteller he turned out to be. Over the course of 100 episodes and counting, Chris has taken his listeners on a trip down the proverbial Silk Road and entertained with stories of mythical emperors, oracle bones, lakes of mercury boiling vats of wine, fractured empires, warring kingdoms, learned bureaucrats, devious eunuchs, Confucian legalists, and Buddhist warriors. Throughout it all, the history of China has managed neither to get bogged down nor simply gloss over the important aspects of its subject matter, and Chris does a superb job distilling an ancient and sometimes mysterious culture and making it digestible to Western listeners who might otherwise be deterred by its unfamiliar names, unknown geography, and complex motivations. So ladies and gentlemen, I'm very pleased to have you join me now, like Digital Age Mongols, as we breach the Great Firewall of China. Today I'm speaking with Chris Stewart, the creator and host of the History of China podcast, who is also the Agora Podcaster of the Month for June 2016. And he is joining me from the future, from his home in Shanghai. Chris, welcome to The Exchange. Thank you for having me. The future is now, here on the eastern side of the world. Awesome. So, uh, I like to jump right in. Um, and I want to, I don't know if I'm blowing your cover here, 
because I don't know what uh, presumptions listeners may have, but you are an American, born and bred in Montana, is that correct? That's right, southwest Montana, where the cows outnumber the people multiple times over. I And I guess the first question, you know, I, I want to ask is, is sort of why China for you? Um, and so let me give a little background to that question. So I think I think we're uh, of a similar age, come from this, you know, a homogenous enough American culture. Yeah. So growing up in the 1980s, uh, I remember the great emphasis being on Japan. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, between say Nintendo, the the auto industry, you know, Michael Keaton's gung ho, of course. Oh yes. Uh and I recall even into the 90s people saying Japanese learn Japanese like that's the language and the culture that we're going to need to, you know, really understand to to win the future. Um so how does a a, a gentle cowherd like yourself from Montana come to um embrace Chinese culture and language and and life essentially? All right. Well, that's a great starter question. Um, And it's a winding tale. So let me try to boil it down to its uh, constituent parts here. Uh, Once I got to the age of uh, majority and went to university, I uh, left Montana. I went to Portland, Oregon, where uh, East Asian culture is a lot lot stronger. Uh, Both Japanese and Chinese, there's a lot of uh, immigration that's happened there as well. And I went to a school there. And I throughout high school and middle school, I'd taken French language, and I had about as much knowledge of Japan or China as you might expect someone, someone from Montana to have, which mm-hmm. was functionally nothing. Um, but I'd gotten tired of French. I decided that it was just too easy, and I needed something a little <laughs> bit more challenging. Okay. Yeah, that was my that was my 18-year-old hubris. Um, so the school that I went to, like a lot of them out there, they, they offered the standard you know, European languages. Uh, but then they also offered Japanese language and Chinese language. And it was just really on a lark that I opted for taking Mandarin rather than Japanese. That was The Japanese program was the larger program. It was more pushed. But I thought, uh, why not go against the current? And uh, almost for no other reason than that, I uh, just decided to start taking a, a language class here or there with, with no basis whatsoever. So then, based off that... I found that I could actually do the language okay enough, in large part because I played a lot of music in high school and even got a scholarship into university. And so Chinese is a tonal language, which makes it especially difficult for everybody. <laughs> but a lot of people, they, they, they have real significant problems even effectively hearing the tone or being able to re- replicate them, which makes both understanding and speaking difficult. But I was able to pretty easily and naturally pick it up, as my parents, my mom would say, from my musical ear. So I was able to kind of coast by on that as a C student in Chinese. And uh, that ended up turning into, I got a little bit more interested into the culture, took a few classes here and there, and, and eventually got the opportunity to take a trip in 2006 or 2007. So I got to go to China, got to see all over the place and decided, wow, this is actually a pretty cool place. I'd like to, you know continue learning more about it. Then my senior year, my my uh, advising professor, because I was a, was a history major, he ended up saying, hey, to me and a few other people that he knew at the school, because it was a very small school, about 2,000 or so undergrads, uh, hey, I know this school in a place in China, it's southern China, this town you've never heard of called Wenzhou. And there's a university there. They don't pay a lot, but you, know, you can just go there for a year. And I know you're interested in it. So 
what do you think? And I was thinking, well, I don't, I don't have anything else to do. Um, so I, uh, I said yes. And I thought, okay, well, I'll just be here a year. I can do anything for a year, right? And uh, I went to there and wound up meeting a beautiful woman who ended up becoming my wife. And here I am. Uh, so, so that's how you uh, moved to China. That's that's the whole story. <laughs> okay, that that's um, you know that's sort of funny. I ended up in Massachusetts. Similarly, that's where my wife was from. It's just funny how people's migrations, uh, I guess, tend to maybe follow a pattern in that way. The things so we do for the, love. Yeah, exactly. So, what was the process like in in actually moving and taking residency in China? Oh, it. A process is a really good way to describe it. I think um, uh, it, it it is an a very large culture shock, uh, and especially where I initially moved to. Like I said, it was a, a city that no one outside of China's probably ever heard of. Very famous within China for being very wheelie dealy, very business like, very um, uh, trade and export oriented. And I think probably the the thing that the that the Wenzhouese are most known for, besides their completely incomprehensible language is um, moving out of China to Europe and living there. The, the Maybe not the majority, but I think the plurality of uh, overseas Chinese living in Western Europe are from or around uh, the city of Wenzhou. But it, it's classified as a tier three city, uh, meaning that it is not Beijing, it is not Shanghai, it's not even Hangzhou or Suzhou. It's, it's a level below that. It's very provincial... Uh, it's got basic amenities, but you have to. It takes a long time to get used to the idea of, of the uh, the drop in the relative standard of living, and I think the process is pretty similar. I've, I've talked to a lot of people about this before, uh, who likewise live here, and it's you start out and everything's amazing and exotic, and you know everything is. I'm going to try everything. I'm going to you know be just the why eyes wide open foreigner who is going to live it up. And that drops off after about, oh, four, three months or so, where all that exoticness starts to wear off and uh, life just started, starts to get normal. And all those kooky, crazy little things that all the locals do are no longer kooky and crazy. They're just uh, obnoxious. And why can't these people just be normal? And that lasts, it lasted for me at least, throughout the remainder of the first year. And there's, there's never quite a point where you're like, and, you know, click and, okay, now I feel much better about it. It's just sort of from that bottoming out, either people say, well, the heck with this. And then they pack their bags and go home because it's just, I, I miss home. Um, I don't like it here anymore and I'm tired of it. Or some people like myself are crazy enough to kind of ride it out. And by the end of the first year, like, okay, it doesn't bother me as much. I, I can kind of figure this out. And it's just this process of over time, you just get more and more used to the little eccentricities. And I mean, this is not uh, only in China. This is this is anywhere, any other culture you'd ever go and live in. You, you deal with some level or another of this same sort of uh, cultural adaptation. And it's just a process of time. But then I, I occasionally uh, will fly back to the U.S. and it's um, it's the reverse. It's It's reverse culture shock. And it's a very real thing of like, wait, the cars are stopping for me? I mean... Usually they just go around me. What's what's wrong? Is something wrong? Um, so I never thought of that. That's I never thought about the the shock coming back to visit um, might have on somebody. That that's really fascinating. Oh yeah, it's it's. I mean, traffic's probably the uh, the most obvious example, just because it's it's a completely different uh, 
mindset, both as a driver and as a uh, as a pedestrian, as a pedestrian in China, it doesn't matter where you are. You're you're playing a game of Frogger whenever you cross the street. God. <laughs> well, yeah, definitely sounds like it was a process getting getting acculturated there. But now you know you're you're all set. You're like a native. <laughs> no, no, I'm not like a native, but I'm 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 acclimatized enough that I can get by, and that I just can kind of roll my eyes and be like, ah, it's always like this whenever something gets too obnoxious. Um, but that said, you know, I, I went from a tier three city and then upgraded to Shanghai, which is, you know, tier one international hub, you know, city with all the amenities. Um, so would I want to go back and downgrade? No, I don't think, I don't, I don't think I could make that uh, transition a second time. Uh, I could, I, I was able to do it when I was, you know, in my early twenties, but not in my, early 30s and um i'm not sure i'd want to uh go through that whole ordeal again <laughs> all right let, let's switch gears and let's talk about the history of china yeah so the history of china is in its second year and enjoys the special podcasting distinction of having over a million downloads and uh, 100 episodes which to me is um i don't know Let's see, uh, to use an analogy that will baffle non-Americans, it's like winning the Cy Young and the MVP award in the same year. So what, if anything, do these types of accomplishments mean? Well, that's a, that's a good question. Um, I mean, I, I'm, I'm trying to work out what exactly that means for myself, even, even now. Um, your listeners may or may not know, when you say we just hit the, the uh, 100 episode mark, that literally just happened in the past week. So it's, it's, it's a new, uh, experience for me as well. The, the million download mark happened a little while ago, but that's likewise, uh, both, both of those in their own ways, they kind of blow my mind. I, I started this project out just as kind of a, well, let's see what I can do with this, you know, kind of a, let's see if this has legs and it turns out it does have legs. Um, and I'm as surprised as anybody that I made it to, uh, a hundred episodes. And uh, it's, it's certainly, it, it's it's a moment that's very proud, but at the same time, I, I look at uh, where I am uh, in terms of the the whole narrative arc and how far there is left to go, and it's also kind of daunting. Of uh, I've hit a hundred episodes, and I'm only in the year seven fifty. You know, wow, how much how much further do I have to go? But I definitely will say that that in terms of the uh, the listener base that I've been able to accumulate so far, uh, they are they have been the source of inspiration of of getting through. Those moments, and by moments I can mean days and sometimes weeks uh, of uh, slog and just like, ugh, do I really want to do this? And it's the the fact that I keep getting listener um, feedback and people saying, hey, where's the next show? I, I can't wait for it. The, this these kind of uh, things. That's that's what definitely has, has always gotten me through it. If if I had put this show out and uh, I'd gotten twelve downloads, um, I might have done it for a few episodes. But I think I think it would have eventually just kind of fallen by the wayside as life got busier. But definitely the the uh, the type of people who listen and and the fact that they are so when they get into it they get really into it and they are very encouraging. That's that's definitely been more than enough to keep me going. Obviously, a uh, hundred episodes now, and I'm excited to keep going. Now, China often promotes itself as unique for possessing. 5,000 years of continuous civilization. Mm -hmm. Is this really a valid distinction? Absolutely or, not. 
Yes, I was going to say, we have, you have to add so many caveats to make that remotely true that it really strips that claim of significance. I mean, you look at Egypt, Egypt still has Egyptians living there. You know, Mesopotamia's been in the business of civilization just as long as, well, there's been civilization. Yeah, so that, that claim is a bit self-serving in a way, isn't it? Oh, it's completely politicized, and it's and it's always has been. It is, well, exactly as you say, it's self-serving, and it's... Um... It's a way to take multiple different kingdoms and empires and nation states that that oftentimes did not have the same culture or even the same ethnicity ruling over them and saying, lumping them all together in this this overarching, oh, well, that's all us. Hmm, no, it's not. I mean, I, I know that I use that in my tagline, the 5,000 years of Chinese history, because, the, you know, it, it works. It's a good hook. I got to say, it's um, I, I can't blame them for it. But certainly as... as uh, I've been going through the, the early history of, of China divides and fractures and is invaded by the, the, the northern steppe tribes who then rule over them for 400 years. It's like that's in no other instance would we consider that, oh, that's one continuous civilization. However, I, I will say that I can also see where they're coming from in that highly politicized sort of statement in that even though they have multiple different peoples and ethnicities ruling over the different parts of this land, most of the time, the invaders have come in, they've then really done their best to try to Sinicize. They've, they've tried to become more Chinese and adopt the Chinese culture, the Confucian ethic and the, the legalist and, and uh, cultural ethos of the Chinese. And that's true of the, the Xiongnu, that's true of the Xianbei, it's true of the Mongols when they show up, and the Kitan, and even the, uh, the, the Manchus. Uh, they all adopted many of the Chinese customs. So in that sense... You had these people come into this land, take over, and then they became Chinese. So I guess in kind of a sense, if you squint and you look at it from a certain angle, uh, then the culture, I suppose, is uh, quite continuous. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great, too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. 
So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Even if the, uh, the political bodies definitely are not. No, I think you've done a really terrific job so far, you know, getting your, your arms around that really big and, and sprawling history of the Middle Kingdom. And, and right now you are you're recording through the kind of the, the Tang Dynasty at the moment. Now, I guess I wanted to ask kind of an incredibly dull question about sources. Now, one of uh, the great strengths of China has been its long existence of a literate bureaucracy, um, you know, including various official historians from time to time. So am I wrong to presume that there's lots of primary source material for you? And if there are, are these always useful for the story that you want to tell, or are they just there to supplement the narrative? So the primary sources can be useful, and I, I use them quite a bit, but they can only be useful in a certain way and, and taking into account certain uh, limitations that they have, which I don't think is just a, a issue with uh, Chinese primary sources. Uh, it's true of, I think, any historical primary source. I've, I've been castigated for using Procopius as a as a primary source, for instance, when I and taking him too much at face value rather than taking into account his own biases and prejudices and and um, and the like when discussing like silk moths and the silk road. And the same is true with Chinese historians. And then you also have to take into account that they're being written in a dynasty about the preceding dynasties. And so right there already you have this politicization of it in that it's in the current dynasty's interests to throw the, the previous dynasties into a negative light and, and justify them having taken over through rebellion and revolution, however and whenever that may have come about. Oh, well, they were bad, their emperors were bad and lazy and, you know, rape-happy, and so we came in and we saved the day. Yeah. The previous has to lose the mandate. Exactly. The previous dynasty must lose the mandate, and that's, that is an entirely navel-gazing, backwards-looking, self-justifying principle uh, in its very nature. You never lose the mandate ahead of time. You've always lost it after the uh, rebellion wins. Then that is also, this similar point is that these histories are written 300, 500 years after the fact a lot of the time. Right now, when I'm researching the Tang Dynasty, the, one of the major primary sources on it is called the Zizhe Tongjian, or the, the Mirror on Effective Governance. But it was written in the Song Dynasty in the 10th century, and it's talking about the 6th and 7th and 8th centuries. So it's, it's this huge time gap, and so you, you lose a lot there. It's not somebody who's just writing down whatever he sees. It's somebody who's compiling a bunch of other stuff into this political document. In fact, the Tang Dynasty is kind of interesting because that's where we get this real explosion in uh, poetry at the time, which is, which is actually a primary source. You have a lot of uh, historical figures and their works having survived. Uh, and it's this, this poetry, it's very, you know, artistically done and, and you can only draw so much out of it. But you can, you can kind of start to see in a way that you really couldn't before um, the way that people felt about the events and ideas that were going on at the time. You can get this, this feeling of, of a real person sitting there feeling something rather than somebody 300 years after the fact um, just compiling narratives and saying, oh, well, we'll put this in and we'll leave that out. I have to say, me personally, over the last five years or so, I've tried to make a really concerted effort to learn more about where China's coming from, just to, to try to understand the modern world better. And I've noticed, and it could just be me, 
but there always seems to be a disconnect when it comes to forming an, an understanding of the personalities of the Chinese emperors. And, and it's it's not because I can't relate to being a divine absolute monarch, because I totally can. But I feel like they emerge from history as almost more two-dimensional, whereas, say, with uh, the Roman emperors, I find that I can connect with them on a more human level, I guess. Particularly Marcus Aurelius or somebody like that. Um, you know, who you, you get his meditations and his, like, his own personal thoughts. Now, I'm wondering, since you kind of have a foot in two worlds, so to speak, now, is this is this just a product of, of cultural differences, or is it something that you've noticed, too? Uh, yes, I will say that it's kind of some of all of that. Uh, there is the, the major cultural difference, and, and the one that I'd really point out is that these Chinese emperors, if they were any good at least, they tried to rule from the Confucian ethos. And what that is, that's that's kind of... that's markedly different than, you know, the the MO of the Roman emperors or the kings of the Greek city-states and that they're very active figures in, in public life a lot of the time. For for the Confucian uh, emperors, if you're really doing your job well, then goodness just flows from you and you shouldn't have to do anything at all. And because you're so good and so righteous, the rest of the society will likewise be. And so you can just sit there basically motionless and and uh, good will flow from you out to the rest of society. That's not to say that that's what Chinese emperors typically actually did. They weren't just sitting there doing nothing. Some of them were. Um, that I should point that out. Some of them did basically just sit there and drink wine and uh, have 5,000 concubines and uh, live the life right up until they get assassinated. But um, for the most part, if we really get into it and, and dig into it, they did do a lot of things, and, and we can make comparisons to, you know, more Western European kind of uh, monarchs, but it does take some digging. And that's I think that goes back to what we were talking about in the, the, the primary source question of they're written about in a very two-dimensional fashion. The, a lot of the, uh, the classical histories, they are purposely portraying them as kind of caricatures. This one was a good one that we should hold up as the paragon of virtue and, and uh, you know, good governance in the case of, of uh, Gaozong of Tang, for instance. Or, indeed, the, the current emperor I'm on, uh, Xuanzong, who's also he's Gaozong's grandson. Both of them are held up as like, ah, these guys were really good, and they, they always did the right thing. And then you have the, uh, the other extreme, which is, you know, this guy is a depraved lunatic, and we need to get rid of him and his line as quickly as possible. And there's just not a whole lot of room left in these old texts for nuance. And, it, and that's actually where... I've come to appreciate m more and more the uh, the more modern histories and their takes on it, and them doing a lot of the legwork for me to put together a more three dimensional look at this person as a as a human and as a fallible and and three dimensional person as we all are and as we all always have been. None of us are two dimensional characters really, uh, but it's easy, especially if it's a literary convention, to to write them as such. So. I could then this kind of leads me to my next question. So, what are the most challenging aspects of communicating Chinese history to a a largely Western English speaking audience? Well, right off the bat, I would have to say uh, the names. The names are really hard, and that's that's people's names, that's place names, that's event names. You've heard of Marcus Aurelius, you've heard of Augustus Caesar, you've heard of the 
the Romanov dynasty or the the Bourbons. All of these are, are pretty familiar names to to anyone who's taken a you know a, a high school history class or maybe even a middle school history class. We we even know more kind of exotic names like you know King Tut or you know Emperor Hirohito or the like. Japanese has managed to percolate into American uh, cultural understanding at a much higher level than than Chinese has. And I mean that's that's not trying to say that uh, that American or European um, cultural ethos is, is trying to be unfair to Chinese history. But it's just, as I said, kind of when we were discussing the language and the difficulty of that, it's, it is a really hard language to, to learn and to um, wrap one's brain around and even a, a real basic surface level. And then the fact that, okay, so I can now remember Emperor Wu, well, which one? So many. You get the same repeated names over and over again with just these different little twerks, uh, tweaks, rather. Um, I don't know of any emperors who were twerking. Sorry. I'm sure there were one or two. I, yeah, I have to think so. <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know, which of the 57 different emperor woos should I remember this time? It's, it's it's very difficult, and I don't blame anyone for having done so. So that is that is something that is a, a definite challenge to overcome. Place names will tend to change over time, like it used to be called Beijing, but now it's Beijing. But we might know it as Peking, and you know that's just the most simple example of it. And so what I've been trying to do, and I've, I think I've gotten better over time, is trying to simplify that down. Like whoever the, the Chinese emperor de jour is will have... Six or seven different names, but I'm only going to give you one, and I'm going to stick with that one, and just so that we can all be very clear about who we're talking about. And I've also really tried to pare down the character lists. Uh, Chinese histories they love to give dozens upon dozens upon dozens of characters because this is that was court life. You had dozens and dozens of, of different officials uh, waiting upon the, the imperial family hand and foot, and everyone who's included was deemed to be very important and rightfully so. But I have to go through with my American brain thinking for a Western audience and say, okay, well, do we really need to hear about this guy once and then he'll never show up again? No, he's cut, he's out. So it's, it is a simplification process and I'm probably uh, not giving some people their, their due, <laughs> but I, I think that's a, that's been a necessary step in trying to make it relatable and, and something that people can sit down and say, okay, I, I'm, coming into this with limited or no prior knowledge, and I can sit down and, and feel like I can at least get the bones of what's going on at this time and place. All right. So we're going we're gonna to start to wind it down here. So you've got about 1,400 years of history left to talk about. What are you most looking forward to covering, or have you already covered your favorite period? It's a very good question. Actually, um, this event that's is going to be coming up in very short order. Uh, I'm actually beginning my, my research into it now. Uh, this could be one of my favorite, most interesting events. It's, um, it's called the An Lushan, or the An Shi Rebellion. Uh, and it starts in the year 755. And what it is, is this uh, massively powerful general who's come into control of the basically the entire northwestern, northeastern rather, army and has been using it against the uh, the Khitan tribes of the Northeast for, for decades. And he's a personal good friend of, of the emperor at the time. Well, he's going to decide that, uh, you know, he should be the emperor now. And so he's going to take his army under his personal command, this massive force which dwarfs the direct imperial army, and he's going to turn it against him. He's going to declare himself the son of heaven, and he's going to wage 
of civil war, the likes of which has dwarfed everything up until the first and second world wars. It's, I mean, it's to this day, it's, you can't put a real clear number on the number of people involved, but it's, it's thought of uh, oftentimes as being the third largest conflict in history after the, uh, the two world wars. So that's going to be something uh, I'm already very excited about. I've been kind of throwing hints into the uh, narrative uh, as we've been going on, but we're going to get into that. And I'm, I'm very excited about that. Then a, uh, I'm also very excited about, you know, once we get into the, uh, the conquest of China by the Mongols. I mean, it's a sad story from the Chinese perspective, of course, but it's uh, very exciting <laughs> from, a, uh, from a historical vantage point. I, I know that's already been done by some others, but I, I'm hoping I can make it a, uh, look at it from a slightly different angle. And then probably the, uh, the third bit that I'm probably most interested in that I don't even know when I'm possibly going to get that far ahead, but when we get into the, uh, the late 19th and early 20th centuries and we get the dissolution of the imperial system, we have yet more massive rebellions, and then the Japanese invasions, uh, the First and Second World Wars, uh, the establishment of the People's Republic. That's also a very complicated but very exciting and very interesting time period. So whenever I get to any of those, and I no promises on how quickly or <laughs> slowly those are going to be able to come about, but those are probably my three big uh, uh, moments that I'm most looking forward to. Oh, wait, great. That um, that actually flows right into, you know, the last question was, where were you hoping to land this podcast in the end? I was wondering if you would get into the People's Republic and talk about the Great Leap Forward or even Tiananmen Square or, you know, where do you see this wrapping up? Yeah, that's a that's a very good question that is still up in the air for me. Um, I have every intent of going up through at least the formation of the PRC, possibly as late as the Tiananmen. Um, you know, I think I think convention, at least a lot of the time states, you know, you really shouldn't be going any later than 20 years ago. Shouldn't, shouldn't be going any closer to the present than about two decades, because at that point you lose basically all historicity and it all becomes political and very heated. And that's kind of, a, that's even more true i think with uh with chinese history because there's a long cultural memory that um people still get very uh heated and, and emotionally worked up about even 80 90 100 years after the fact so it's it is it is a question that i'm still well it's still up in the air and i'm i'm certainly i'm not uh, having to decide by tomorrow or anything but I'm, I'm i'm probably a few years out before i have to really make any hard decisions about that this is true well that's fair enough so Chris, I uh, I wanted to thank you for taking the time to speak with me today. I loved our conversation. Um, did you want to plug anything before we go? Well, I suppose as I just uh, as I said a little bit earlier, uh, we have the hundredth episode that just got released. That's a question and answer episode where uh, listeners sent in questions, including one from you, Tom, which was a very good and I had a lot of fun answering that. Yeah, my questions are the best questions. They are. And that was on uh, Chinese alcohol. But the, if, if any of the listeners want a, a starting point and just a, a place where they can kind of uh, jump, in, jump into the, uh, the feel of the show and not have to worry about background, um, that's very much kind of a, a one-off show that is just taking whatever questions uh, listeners gave. So I think uh, maybe they should give that one a try. Sounds good. All right, Chris. Well, thanks again, and you have a great day. You too. Okay, everybody. I hope you enjoyed that talk with Chris Stewart. If you don't already listen to the history of China, you really should. I don't think you'll be disappointed. 
You can find the history of China on iTunes, Acast, and probably a dozen other places that I'm not even aware. But you can always go check out the website, thehistoryofchina.wordpress.com. And just a brief bit of business on the tail end here before we go today. If you enjoy listening to the Agora Podcast Network's original content, why not consider leaving an iTunes review? As producers, it's always nice to get feedback, particularly good feedback, and your reviews will help Agora get noticed by that mysterious iTunes algorithm. So, if you have a few spare moments, we'd really appreciate it. All right. Thanks for listening, and I hope to talk to you again soon. <laughs>